Hello everyone and welcome to Short Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I am none too shabby, Ed, thank you. But there's been an awful lot going on, hasn't there? Mmm, yes, it's been a busy week for news in the film and entertainment industry, so this whole episode is going to be a news-centric episode because uh, there's been a lot of big things happening uh, this week. This is only tangentially connected to news uh, right now, but uh, I, I think one of the stories in this week that gave me the most pleasure was the whole Lawrence Fox Rebecca <laughs> Front thing, which was really funny to see. I enjoyed seeing everyone joke about it, although it did make for one moment that made me feel very bad which is that i made a joke you know everyone was basically taking the text of his of his tweet saying like you know this is the worst cancellation yet you know someone i've worked for 10 years so i posted that and i posted it with uh, a gif of the scene from godfather to part two where, where michael says i knew it was you freddo and then about 10 minutes later my friend patrick sent me a personal message on facebook saying are you okay i just saw your latest tweet i didn't know if something bad has happened i was like oh no it's a joke and people are like making a meme out of this lawrence fox thing i'm really thank you for checking in <laughs> um, so that was that was quite lovely indirectly just kind of having a nice sense of like oh it's, it's patrick's a good guy <laughs> it's nice of him to kind of reach out but yeah also thinking yeah it can be weird sometimes when you know maybe a meme hasn't quite permeated every corner of the internet yet and out of context can seem like a cry for help <laughs> so yeah no yeah it sounds like a cry for help but it's actually it's it's a joke i promise yes i'm, yeah. I'm familiar with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so hard to see the line you know but Ed, before we've launched properly into into the news, and you know, I could just spend an hour and a half talking about how much I adore Rebecca Front. How are you, mm. please? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. I have a very busy Thursday where I basically, you know, during this quarantine period that we've all been going through, I have put on a little bit of weight, about seven or eight pounds, which isn't as bad as it could be, but also. I'm just kind of thinking, ah, that probably some of that is also like muscle loss because I'm not going to the gym at all because yeah. my gym closed in March, reopened briefly in June, and then the roof collapsed. So it hasn't been open Whoa. pretty much. Yeah, there was a really bad hailstorm and it just like absolutely wrecked the roof. So they've been closed. They're closed until like November now. So a few weeks ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and uh, curtail this. So I'm starting the keto diet just to kind of see how that goes and i also bought some weights and a bench press so that i can you know do some working out at in my apartment in addition to you know going for long walks which is the main exercise i've been getting recently and thursday was just the day that it all arrived (laughs) and i have to tell you ordering weights online was a really good idea until i had to like pick them up from the parcel room of my apartment complex and then carry them up three flights of stairs (laughs) Your first challenge. It begins now. You don't even have to open the box. And they work. Exactly. <laughs> I was really tired after hauling all of that stuff up. But it's going well so far. This is the first day where I'm properly on keto because, like, the last couple of, like, the last week it's just basically been like, okay, what carbs are in the house? I'm going to, like, use them all up. So yesterday I used up the last of the cereal that I had in the house. And now it's just like, meat eggs cheese just like that for the foreseeable future which isn't uh, the worst thing in the world because uh, i can cook a bunch of stuff using those ingredients but yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting i think kind of trying to apply that level of discipline to myself because i have done it in the past i've lost quite a lot of weight at various times over the years but it's just it's a very different psychological mindset of that because usually when i was doing that there were more distractions available for me to kind of so I wouldn't be thinking about you know what I'm eating or I wouldn't be sitting around bored thinking let's have a snack whereas now like there's that just constant sense of boredom so um but mainly I'm doing this because I in the back of my mind I've got that kind of like Rob McElhenney thing where I think it'd be really funny if I showed up to the next time that people are in the office and I'm just shredded 
which is really for health it'd be good as well but like i just think for the comedy value of it it'd be really funny if i just showed up and i was just kind of like hulked out oh ed committing to the bit is what i'm all about uh and yeah to to pull a to pull a fast mac um Mm -hmm. i think is uh but you just look after yourself yeah yeah, will do. Good. What about you? How's your week been? It's been lovely. It's been really nice, thanks. It's all sort of screamed past, and this is it, as we were just sort of chatting about what we were going to do this episode and then going through the news. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, wait, that happened this this week. Because I feel like we've mm. had... It's It's been strange, hasn't it? Because in terms of news that's been happening over the past few months, there's obviously the big will-they-won't-they reopen cinemas question Mm. there's been kind of lots of speculation about release models and just kind of it's that it's that um kind of uh wallace and gromit where gromit's on the train and he's desperately putting the track (laughs) down in front of him it's it's that kind Mm -hmm. of it's been that kind of feeling and i feel like this week i'm just like so much has happened in a way that is actually like quite concrete announcements and plans Mm a very sad passing as well but it does feel like maybe because there's been a bit more um, ability for people to kind of well to meet and have a semblance of a model that they were that we're familiar with in terms of working and certain things starting to kind of come back into play that that things are happening and one thing that I thought was interesting is that Hilary Swank in, in the words of, not my words, Ed, the Hollywood Reporter, has filed a scathing lawsuit against those running the SAG-AFTRA health plan. Mm. I'm digging into this story is really interesting because, again, it's kind of like, I mean, that's quite a clickbaity headline, isn't it? Because yeah. when you read the actual article, Hilary Swank is standing up for her own, well, reproductive and gynecological uh, rights and health. Mm. and she is disclosed that she's sort of suffering from a lot of um, I don't think it, I'm not sure if it's endometriosis but polycystic ovary syndrome I think maybe mm. which is debilitating to anyone who has ovaries and it's so hard still to get um, diagnosed and proper sort of help and, and hormone balancing it's, it can be incredibly painful and what Hilary Swank is doing is that her her health plan only really covers something to do in terms of if she wants to have children. It's the idea of like, oh well, if you're not trying to have a baby, then why 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 do you want to get your insides sorted if you're not going to mm-hmm. be a mother? And as someone who is not having children, Ed, and uh, is a is a cis woman, I think it I find it very um, exciting and admirable that Hilary Swank is gonna use the swank swagger to stand up and be like because this is the thing the weird thing about labor movements within and rights and things like that within sort of the hollywood <laughs> like hillary swank i would say is like an incredible actor and mm. you know winning oscars and stuff but it is essentially a very like private almost hippie-ish sort of person um, mm. so you don't immediately think but she does still have a very high profile and a lot of res- lot of respect and boys don't cry we can still not great you know didn't, didn't cast a trans actor I think she did a good job and it was compassionate and it is very much of its time right I don't think it's, mm-hmm. we should we should not consider it the gold standard but we can appreciate where it was in, in time but the thing is is that she so she's got this profile and I mean she's probably got a bit of dollar in the bank right Ed so she could Mm. but what I find interesting is these moments where it's the people within a union who are basically richer right (laughs) they are richer but because they have the profile and they are not doing it for the money they're doing it for the rights they like this is what Hilary Swank is doing she's saying and 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 using her direct action and force to be like, that's not okay. Why should it be based solely on whether I'm going to have children? I am a person in my own right and I deserve this healthcare, which will be incredible for SAG after a 
members who don't have that sway, who depend on that health plan. You know, I think these things are really interesting and it makes me think about um, when Taylor Swift um, took a harasser to court yeah. and sued him for a dollar and she was like, I, it's not about money. It's about, it's about, you know, it's about justice. Yeah, I find I find those moments really interesting and you could say like, well, Taylor may be taken for everything you can and then <laughs> donate it or something. But also I think there's very you know, just sort of demanding like someone accept what they did, apologize to you and face some kind of accountability and consequences. Mm. Yeah. And I think it also could draw attention to other kind of uh, biases within the healthcare system against women in particular because that's one of the things that's often cited when you know there's lots of battles over whether or not health plans particularly ones that are associated with religious organizations should cover birth control and the argument against that is like well you know it's the, you know, we shouldn't pay for people not to have children or whatever but it completely ignores the fact that there is a huge swathe of women who use birth control for other things you know like to, to help with the um i believe like the, the symptoms of endometriosis all those all those kind of conditions like they can help mitigate that and again that very much that view that women's health is directly related to their ability to have children as opposed to you know them being a person who should be allowed to exist in life with relatively little pain which, yeah. I don't know, seems like a nice thing to get to kind of offer people and to give people as many chances and support to have, regardless of whether or not they have children or plan to have children. Yeah. Just a thought, just Hollywood, a, just a thought. Just, uh, you know, maybe. Oh, oh, you know, just, uh, we'll just, we'll just leave that on your desk. Just uh, get, <laughs> get back to us, you know, five, five to ten working days. We can, we can wait. In other kind of big ongoing stories of uh, our times the uh, tenant opened last week in the u.s to about 20 something million dollars like a de- decent amount for the fact that you know not every cinema's open very few people are currently planning to go to cinemas cinemas are, have fewer seatings uh, seats available fewer screenings etc etc but still not great and then this week warner brothers announced that a they're not going to be releasing box office data for Tenet's second weekend, which is an interesting and weird choice, and maybe suggests that they're not terribly uh, happy with how things are going. And then kind of supplementary evidence for that was they also announced that they are delaying Wonder Woman 1984 again from its release, which I believe was going to be in October, to Christmas, and then who knows, maybe we'll get delayed again. And separately from that, Universal, I believe, um, or whoever it is who's, who's behind the Candyman remake by uh, Nia DaCosta, uh, announced that they were delaying that movie that was meant to open next month and is now being pushed back till next year. And this also is happening around the same time that there was a quote from uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's kind of the, the head of, the, the chief expert in the US on pandemics you know on on infectious diseases who said that he does not expect that people will be able to go into movie theaters and sit and watch a movie without wearing a mask as official policy as opposed to arseholes just taking them off as soon as they sit down until late 2021 so there's this whole there's this kind of whole uh coalescence of things going on in the news this week around you know this effort by hollywood to try and get back to normal by opening a big movie like Tenet in a bunch of screens but still in a limited way hoping that you know it will attract people back and then almost immediately a load of the, the yeah, Warner Brothers who are both who are behind both Tenet and Wonder Woman and um, Universal basically take a step back and thinking yeah it's still not quite there <laughs> so it, which I think kind of uh, exemplifies a lot of what's happened in America in general in terms of the coronavirus where you know there was the initial lockdowns and quarantines in a lot of places which you know tried to tamp down on the virus and and did like generally what you would want them to do and then a rush to reopen which then just ends up in this kind of staggered half measure that doesn't really satisfy anyone it doesn't stop the virus from spreading but it also doesn't allow the economy to you know come back in any meaningful way 
Yeah, I mean, just reading about um, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson for their film Synchronic um, uh, with uh, Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie, uh, which <clears> looks which looks pretty interesting. And it's been given an October release date, um, but Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead have been saying themselves that the release is out of their hands, which it is. The majority mm. of directors, and that they don't want people. They're, they're urging people to not go and see it in a in a cinema. They're saying, "Please see it at home. <laughs> Please don't go." And you know where you're like, "Thank fuck, someone's saying it." And I think, mm. and you know, and to and to be that transparent and say we don't support this release and it's out of our hands. That's not because when when do you really get that much of a that much of a sway as writers directors it takes a takes a long time if at all um and mm. certainly in i'm gonna say it ed sorry i almost feel like we should do a maybe not a drinking game maybe we should all get a bit healthier because i could do that eat a strawberry every time someone <laughs> says unprecedented times but this is mm. the, and i remember looking sort of at contracts back in the day when i was still working as a production assistant and they are wild in terms of the speculation they go into where it's some kind of like really sort of indie relationship film and there's a clause about theme parks you know who who gets the theme park in case the film is franchised I was like I don't think this is going to happen but it's there it's down so obviously and but as, as wild as the going in terms of like acts of god you know pandemics are still something that we haven't really hadn't really factored into society so here we are unprecedented times very of your choice nom but I, I really admire them and I think it's I wonder if more people will follow suit if there will be some kind of and whether that will raise the you know some some kind of protest or sort of union and whether that will raise the public profile of like oh when you go and see a film it's it doesn't completely belong to the director it doesn't completely belong to the cinema it doesn't completely belong to the actors film is such a behemoth in terms of all of the different industries and sectors that one that, that a film actually <laughs> is set amongst and kind of being like oh distribution exhibition and production are very different things which i don't think a lot mm. of people really grasp in terms of the legal and financial ramifications yeah which i think we're also seeing a bit of not to kind of really litigate the kind of the controversy over cuties which we discussed a few weeks ago but you know that movie's out now and it has kind of sparked a kind of renewed fervor around that with you know, people who reviewed the movie positively getting kind of absolutely harassed uh, consistently and like Ted Cruz writing, like say, asking for an investigation into Netflix and all this sort of like stuff, which all stems entirely from the fact that, you know, some of it's like just total bad faith, weird right wing QAnon stuff kind of creeping to the surface in a horrifying way. But yeah most of it kind of stems from the fact that netflix put out this absolutely terrible poster that completely missells what the movie is about and that has like really adversely affected the life of the director of that movie who had no choice in that and yeah. so now her you know she obviously left social media but you know maybe her career and life are kind of irrevocably like altered as a result of this which is just yeah just a real horrible side of just how people don't quite understand how these various things work and you know how and i was actually just listening to the latest episode of the blank check podcast which was nominally about the robert zemeckis film used cars which is a great movie by the way if anyone hasn't seen it it's not terribly well known but it's a huge amount of fun but um on it the the host of the show griffin and david are talking to paul shear and jason manzoukas and the entire last half of that episode is pretty much just them talking about the experience of making comedy films in the modern era and just the frustration that they both, uh, that Shear and Manzoukas have at, you know, being creators themselves, not really actors, but people who like write and produce stuff at their sense of frustration when a trailer comes out for something they've worked on that completely missells it and completely gets it wrong. And just how, even though they are both fairly established and you know have worked for years and years in that industry and have a certain amount of clout how they still don't really have any control over that sort of stuff and how dispiriting it can be but how they'll still get blamed for it <laughs> somehow uh, for like a bad trailer or a bad uh, a bad poster 
uh, if talking about movies that may be coming out this year, who can say, uh, but are currently planned to come out in November, we got the first trailer for Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune this week, which set the world on fire with memes about uh, sandworms <laughs> and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, as someone who has tried to read Dune several times, likes it but has never really kind of like got into it but you know finds that whole world really kind of like fascinating and certainly you know like the design of it that you see in the david lynch movie or that in the un- the unused stuff for the jodorowsky one that ended up basically being used to create the visual language of alien and things like that it's kind of a real fascinating sci-fi world and i was quite excited i think like a lot of people to see the trailer to see the kind of great all-star cast they've assembled for it and i i walked away thinking like yeah that kind of looks like a big sci-fi movie <laughs> that's a big feel. boy there that's a that's <clears throat> a hefty bun yes <laughs> but it didn't leave me like walk away thinking oh man a great new vision or like oh the, you know this is like doom for a new generation it just kind of felt like another kind of like big budget sci-fi movie and i'm not going to say like that's totally a disappointment because hey you know i like big budget sci-fi movies and uh, i'm excited to see what the final product ends up being whenever i am able to see it but i don't know there was just something about it that kind of felt a little bit deflating and i wonder if it's just that they focused on so much of the really kind of like normal accessible stuff about dune like the weirdest thing you see in it is the big sandworm or the you know Tim Murphy Chalamet putting his hand in a box and screaming. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I really I might have to change my website domain. I, I don't <laughs> EmilyBenita.com needs a needs a shush up to Timothy Chalamet putting his hand in a box and screaming.com. Thank you. <laughs> it's certainly it like you can probably buy that domain and redirect it at least. Kind of really get the uh, the Frank Herbert bump. I don't know. What did, what did you think of the trailer, Emily? Did it kind of impress you in any particular way? Not really. I'm I'm with you in that sort of strange mm. feeling where it's like, okay, I can see that this is an epic, but it was so... just felt quite dull to me. Like, it felt quite mm. plodding, and you've seen one June, you've seen them all. But people keep trying to yeah. make them. <laughs> I don't know. I'm open to having my mind change, but I... And I really like a lot of Villeneuve's films, but I was very, like, Blade Runner 2049 really irked me um, mm. because going back ever so slightly to what we were saying about Hilary Swank earlier, it's just, it's very clear when a sci-fi has been written by men who believe that the salvation of the human race is to have babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, um, no, actually, freedom is that we don't, like, because who is having the baby? <laughs> mm-hmm. And even and even in replicants, it's it's Rachel. It's it's the woman. You're like, oh, cool. <laughs> so we're just gonna keep on. You literally, you're literally making us baby making machines. That is what 2049 <laughs> did, which is so sad because I think there was such an interesting, like, feeling around Ryan Gosling's character, who is this sort of disaffected mm. white man and goes through a sort of journey of radicalization, really. And, and understanding and sacrifice for others and I think what could have been a really amazing story about advocacy and sacrifice in a way that could have been you know similar to Mad Max Fury Road just completely lost because nobody did, uh, did even did a bit of feminism but did include sex work mm. uh, and Mackenzie Davis is, is wonderful as the sex worker and I guess is shown as a fair bit more of a, of a person and ironically replicant blah 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 than, than a lot of depictions of sex work but yeah any any chance to drag on 2049 I'm going to take it but Villeneuve yes it, it just looks style over substance to me at this point I don't think and, and maybe there is substance to it but the trailer did not give me anything of that not even not even Un Soupçon the substance Ed so <laughs> it's a it's a it's a big wide open meh from me Hmm. I think it also suffers quite a bit from like the John Carter thing where like you take a story that has been so influential for so long that has inspired so many things like whenever anyone talks about the news like oh Dune is the thing that inspired Star Wars it's kind of like 
yeah and we've seen stuff <laughs> we've seen stuff was in all its iterations like you can dress up this storytelling that is like foundational to a lot of modern myths or whatever and tell it again but it's gonna look like all the stuff it inspired which i think is kind of like the problem that i coming have coming into it is like okay it kind of reminds me of a lot of things and also that that just something about the tone of it all also kind of made me think this kind of feels like it's going for game of thrones or whatever and like yeah even if even if i liked game of thrones anymore if i hadn't kind of like dropped off in the last few seasons of that show i kind of feel like that would have been a bad move to kind of make it feel like something that happens to be popular right now instead of trying to make it feel like its own distinct new thing and it kind of feels like they kind of drained again this is all just off the trailer that the final film could be a lot more full of color and personality than than what we're seeing currently but it does look like they've kind of taken this book that is fawny and weird and comes out of you know like the particular cultural maelstrom of the 60s and what frank herbert was kind of seeing around him at the time and and trying to kind of make sense of all of these kind of interesting things going on and these ideas that were swirling around in the culture and then making like ah they all kind of wear black and strut around (laughs) kind of maybe doesn't doesn't make it uh particularly enticing but i am I'm, i'm obviously open to it ending up being being really good but you know so far it it isn't kind of like you know setting my mind alight or anything ironically not very spicy ed (laughs) exactly another movie that we may or may not see at some point in the future apparently is a sequel to borat (laughs) which i don't think anyone had on their 2020 bingo card no but apparently there were reports last month or so that uh sasha pan cohen had been going around la as borat you know filming scenes and no one knew quite what to make of it but apparently uh he has put together a sequel to borat and it's finished in some form and he's been screening it for executives to sell it which is really interesting it was not something that i ever thought would happen mainly because like the first borat film is so tied to its cultural moment even though my wife still gets said a lot by everyone (laughs) including me just now but you know that that one line has really endured more than a lot of that uh, film. Uh, I've always and, and I'm I'm very disappointed that the line from Bruno. Okay, I've heard about Darfur. What's R five? Has not really kind of <laughs> lingered in the consciousness as much as it has in my brain. But like that that movie was so big at its time, and it's kind of had this this weird long tail where everyone knows who Borat is. That it just seemed like the character was too big for Bar- for Cohen to ever do him again like it would be so hard to have yeah. the sense of surprise so it kind of had me wondering if maybe this alongside you know the stories we've had of him going to like far right rallies pretending to be <laughs> the leader of a white separatist movement and like getting on stage and then kind of humiliating people if maybe some of this is like maybe this is going to be some sort of ensemble movie or you know ensemble of one essentially where he's going to be playing a bunch of different characters with Borat as like the recognizable spine of it which could be quite interesting it's just it, it's I'm just so bowled over by him him doing this and doing it in this particular way that I, I'm really uh, struggling to kind of think about what to make of it yeah because I watched a bit of who is America mm-hmm that being the last kind of big output and, and piece of work he's done. Yeah. And I really admire Sasha Baron Cohen for his anti-Facebook stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the work he's doing and the sort of public addresses that he gives are really important in terms of civil liberties and, and protection of, of groups and how Facebook is just horrific for letting the worst kind of hate speech on riot Mm. and i guess yeah like it's interesting what you say there in terms of the element of surprise right and what's but but sasha baron cohen has been managing to do this for decades now because he was ali g before he was borat Mm. or at least you know those are characters around the same time but you know ali g didn't take off in the film because obviously it's a very different kind of I haven't watched it for years. I remember finding it quite sweet in a strange way at the time because he is trying to save his local his local rec centre, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. But he has an ability to 
wouldn't say quite shapeshift, but I don't think it's surprise. I think it's that he knows the people who don't know who he is. I think mm, he's got a yeah. very I think he's got a very good sense of who his audience is and who his targets are, for lack of a better word. Because mm-hmm, yeah. we, we, we all know. And and you could see that when like the Ali G show over in the UK had been on for a few years and maybe he was running out of people who didn't know his characters, so then he was like, Okay, we're gonna do it in America then there's lots more people who don't know me over there. Yeah. And yeah, he he's always been very good at kind of navigating those shifts and even when they don't pan out when when after he had done Bruno and then he did the dictator where it was kinda of like, ah this doesn't quite come together this like new character in this entirely fictionalized thing but then he didn't kind of like he didn't push ahead and go okay i'll do another one he was like okay i'll just become like a character actor who shows up in american movies yeah for sure and i think because he's more interested in in his work he is this kind of gadfly jester who is who is using kind of comedic entrapment to bring to reveal people yeah in in a, in a similar kind of nathan fielder <laughs> sense right and i think that's what he's most interested in and it's that str- it's that strange that strange and i think very fertile ground like you know where the land meets the sea of where activism meets comedy mm-hmm. because i think he because it's not a prank show you know he's not he's not john jolly yeah. he's he's trying to enact change or make things transparent that are very murky and i just wonder what borat's gonna do though because like borat was definitely even though it had moments in terms of like his his sort of hoaxing out the Mm anti-semitism that wasn't the point those are like oh those scenes you know but it it felt more overall a jolly time (laughs) a jolly time of really pulling out the idiocy and Bruno a bit more as well whereas it's his TV work like particularly Who is America that I think is really just out and out he's, he's become more and more political I think or, or maybe he's had he's been able to develop enough of a profile and and trust and being allowed to be more political you know maybe it's that I just wonder what this this Borat's going to be about you know yeah. um, and the public view of Pamela Anderson has changed quite a bit if he finds her again in terms of Assange and oh I don't know I, I wonder if that's going to factor in it anymore if it's going to start with him like in his village very upset because she is she has gone to to England to pursue Julian Assange <laughs> that'd be a that'd be a choice I mean that's a, as inciting incidents go Ed there's, there's been worse mm-hmm. what would you here's a question what do you want to see Borat do I think, and, and this, um, you, you and I talk about him so much offline, I don't know if we've actually talked about him much on the show, but like so much of what I would want him to do, Connor O'Malley yeah. is just doing, like that that approach of just kind of taking on a comic persona and putting yourself into potentially very dangerous situations, like um, the Truth, Truth Hunters, is that his pilot that he did? Um, oh, yes, oh, I love Truth Hunters. To, Oh, it's it's yeah, it's an amazing pilot. If you haven't seen it, I will uh, I will come after you if you haven't, listener. It's, it's <laughs> the thing that I sort of recommend to people. I think I send the link at least three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like I feel like he's definitely doing that kind of that. You you, you can you can trace the influence of Sasha Baron Cohen. I think in Conor O'Malley's work. Yeah. And he goes so far with it as well, like the truthhunters.org thing where he goes to the inauguration, he's talking to Trump supporters and stuff like that, where he's really, he, he's kind of like really egging them on to say the most horrifying things. <laughs> and obviously they don't require much prodding in that direction, but also stuff like, you know, <laughs> that video, he that stream he did where he went to the protest in Portland and was doing his kind of comedy bits whilst police were like standing ready to tear gas people yeah. like he puts himself in some situations that could get him in serious you know harm and i kind of feel like that is the level you would need from a new borat movie if if cohen really wanted to try and say something about america if he really wanted to kind of pursue something in a more overtly political way as opposed to his kind of you know just kind of like tricking racists into revealing how awful they are 
that he would need to kind of put himself into into harm's way in a way that I you know I'm sure he would if he he is able to but I don't know how free he would able to be in doing that sort of stuff compared to someone like Connor O'Malley who really isn't restrained by anything like he's not doing anything for like a high budget he's just like throwing himself in a lake with a GoPro and doing a a talk show (laughs) like no one's really there to um to kind of stop him from putting himself into a dangerous situation except hopefully like A.D. Bryant just being like are you sure yeah yeah this one you sure you're about doing this one okay just I don't know, wear a helmet or something. I don't know. <laughs> you, you need... We run out of grease again. I can't keep greasing you up <laughs> like this. <laughs> we need a subscription. Oh, God. And the, I, I just wonder where he gets his jeans from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think... I think because Conor O'Malley's definitely leading into the more sort of surreal... His influences are Sasha Baron Cohen and the internet. It's that kind yeah. of like... Not so much... The kind of surreal Dadaist memes and sort of dank humour of the internet. I wonder what, but yeah. Well, we'll find out soon enough, mm. I guess. Yeah, I do wonder where it will show up because obviously he's got this deal with Showtime, or, or he had a deal with Showtime for the Who's right. America. I wonder if it will show up there or if he'll maybe take it to one of the bigger streaming services, one that, you know, has kind of like more of an audience because I'm not sure how much of a cinematic release it would end up having. Yeah. Given the current the current situation. I think with um, Sasha Baron Cohen's work in particular, though, and maybe just because it's been around for a while, but in terms of, like, DVDs and streaming, I don't feel like you have to go to a cinema to see any of his work. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like clips of Ali G on YouTube and all that kind of stuff, it will find... A, yeah think his audience is quite broad and i think he is generally more famous for tv yeah those are certainly the bits of his that linger the most in my memory like i always i always think of and very kind of infrequently rewatch and just laugh at one of the bits from i guess it must have been the american version of the allergy show where he goes to a beach on spring break and he's got like four or five like frat boys there and he's as bruno trying to tell him that you know he wants them to do a promo for his tv show and he's getting them amped up and each time he's like no i need more energy more energy and like it ends with like one of them jumping off the roof of the rv that they're all staying in into camera and they're all just like screaming and it's this wonderful heightening where they're constantly trying to think of more and more ways to kind of uh you know to kind of be more energetic and they're just constantly infuriated by him and his insistence they have to go bigger and bigger and bigger and then it ends with him being like okay and now just say say hello to gay tv or whatever and then they all just go fucking mental at him for, yeah. for because underlying all this kind of like bonhomie is like oh dear deep strain of homophobia and just that's that's one of the things that always kind of like jumps out to me and then obviously you know stuff he did outside of the show like him inter- interviewing david and victoria beckham or whatever where, yeah, you know, that point where he was he was so inescapable in pop culture. <laughs> so, huge. You know. I mean, he, was, he was so famous. Like, you're right. Like, you couldn't move for Ali G. It was definitely like, they went all in on Ali G at Channel 4. And so you can understand for sort of good reason in some way. And it was kind of, it's not a million miles away from the same kind of format as uh, Mrs. Merton. Oh, Carolina mm. Hearn, how we miss you. Oh. Uh, uh. But the thing that I remember is, or at least, has really come into crystal clear focus because of the context now. He interviewed Jacob Rees-Mogg. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and and I guess he was like, "Where can I find the most ridiculous Tory?" <laughs> and and I guess like I think Philomena Kunk as well. Mm-hmm. In her yeah. in her her series, there's definitely a lot of like Ali G in that. But I think. But then, of course, Philomena Kunk's just kind of being uh, willfully obtuse to people who, do, who are just trying to explain things to her. And I guess the the point is on the character, not about revealing anything about that interviewee for sort of power or mockery reasons, you know. Yeah, and I, I think as well with the Ali G thing was like his whole approach was so, was so fresh because I feel like no one had really thought to portray someone like that on TV in that way before. No one had really thought, okay, they're all these like 
working class people from like the the outer the outer kind of reaches of London who are obsessed with hip hop hip hop and kind of like talk to it. or you know there were lots of people when I was growing up in rural Leicestershire who were basically like that as well and him kind of like taking that and putting that into the mainstream and making this character that felt really concrete in a way that people thought you know people being interviewed thought he was some sort of real person that they were on some sort of youth orientated TV show that they didn't understand and being kind of like the trap being laid for them and how that became even funnier once he became massively famous and he was talking to people who did know who Ali G was and he still managed to kind of trick them into saying ridiculous things and I feel like he didn't exactly ruin that for everyone who wanted to do a similar thing going forward because people still fall for that sort of stuff people still don't do enough research on who they're talking to and end up talking to like you know a Nathan Fielder or whatever and just ending up in this completely absurd absurd situation but he certainly made it I think a lot harder for someone to kind of like really break through in the same way Uh, one of the other stories from this week that came as uh, a bit of a shock both because of its content and also the way it was kind of announced was the news that the Venture Brothers the long-running infrequently released uh, adult swim show has been cancelled this news first became first came to people's knowledge uh, i think sort of early in the week where there was a twitter prompt going around which was basically people saying what show was cancelled too early and one person who i believe had written a book on the venture brothers replied just saying the venture brothers and at this point the news wasn't publicly known that clearly and everyone started being like wait what there's i hadn't heard any there's none of the creators and this guy's saying it's cancelled and then a few days later adult swim kind of came out and said yes after you know 17 years and seven seasons the adventure brothers is cancelled and the the creators uh jackson public and doc camera admitted uh, uh, and uh, confirmed that news as well and all of the people who involved like james urbaniak who's voiced several characters on the show for a long time all kind of came out and talked about how it was cancelled and it was just like a very sad thing for all involved because the venture brothers for people who don't know is a animated series that started in 2003 on adult swim uh, which focuses focuses on the misadventures i guess of uh, rusty venture who is a former johnny quest style kind of like child adventure character like it's it takes place in this weird world where you know comic book and like superhero characters all kind of really exist and he was both someone who went on adventures with his dad on all these kind of like and was constantly in life-threatening situations as a child and also was the star of a tv show based on his adventures it's a very weird uh com- idea that is kind of beautifully used to comment on you know the sense of failure on the ways in which you know you people kind of become miserable in life because things don't turn out the way that they hoped and they still have to keep on going it's like a really beautiful show that's also incredibly funny and bleak and sad and uh, it's just an absolutely wonderful show and i've been digging back into the show in the wake of the cancellation this week and just been reminded again how wonderfully kind of like inventive and unique it is but it's also a show that didn't produce episodes very often you know it started in 2003 and you people often went two to three years between seasons and because jackson public and doc hammer take a really long time to work on scripts and they do a lot of the behind the scenes work themselves so they were you know pretty deep into production on what would have been the eighth season so knowing that all that work has potentially gone to waste if you know the show doesn't get picked up by another service which is still you know quite possible but but uh, is currently ha- is not something that has happened and yeah it's just a really sad thing to see for a show that was so beloved that was such a focal point of the growth of adult swim particularly in the early 2000s and as it's gone along and was always something that had this like really fervent fan base who really chimed with its particular view of the world and yeah so it, it just really sucks <laughs> that it was kind of cancelled in this way where there's a very real chance that the creators won't get a chance to finish out you know the the show as they would have liked on their own terms instead you know midway through them trying to think of what the next season would be you know it just gets the axe and yeah so it's just just really awful it's just that i'm not familiar with the venture brothers i would really like to based off uh, that description ed and uh 
off bike he was saying like oh yeah it's really it's it's really funny it's so sad and i was like well that's my <laughs> that's my whole wheelhouse it's that real disrespect and you just wonder what's happening to, to, because they know that i mean that's not a mystery that like oh it takes them a really long time to get a series together and to kind of give them the go ahead and then take that away is very strange because normally it's, it's very odd for something to be cancelled in production yeah or for them to have like this kind of open-ended thing where they're i think very similarly to kind of what hbo have with larry david over curb where it's kind of like the show even when it wasn't on the air still existed it was exactly. just you know they were just waiting for Larry to say, "Hey, I have ten scripts ready. Let's go." Um, I kind of feel like that was that was the, the same sort of arrangement that they had with Adult Swim and Venture Brothers. Like even when they were taking two to three years to make a season, there was still that sense of like, "Oh yeah, the show's still an ongoing concern. We're just waiting for the scripts to be handed in and for production to actually kick in." Yes, because you don't have to be on the air to still be going or in production. That doesn't necessarily mm. mean you are cancelled. Remember when that was just the original use of that term, Ed? Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're just on hiatus. Yeah, and it, as well, you know, knowing that the show has that big fan base, that it's never, it's maybe never going to be like a top rated show for Adult Swim at this point because Adult Swim has been going for so long and it's kind of a show, you know, it doesn't air episodes frequently enough for it to kind of build up that constantly growing base of new of new viewers or whatever but you know that fan base is pretty vocal as has been demonstrated over the last couple of days and people have really been kind of like putting together petitions and uh shannon strucci who uh is a uh, makes videos on youtube and most famously the one the, the two parts that she did on parasocial relationships which i recommended ages ago and which is really great uh, she did a short video about the Venture Brothers and what it means to her and her work, and which is like I would really recommend to anyone to check out to kind of get a sense of why the show engenders this kind of passion in people. And I think that there is something really kind of moving about seeing that, but also knowing that you know someone at Adult Swim was like, ah, it doesn't matter. Like for whatever reason, they decided that it doesn't fit with what they're doing anymore. Which you know, fair fair enough. That's what executives uh always do and you know maybe that I, I think there's been some turnover at adult swim recently and they've been trying to move away from some of the kind of like broier and more toxic stuff that um has been happening in some of the adult swim shows over the years but i don't i don't feel like venture brothers ever really fit into that it was it was a much stranger show than you know some of the some of the stuff that people react too badly on that that station yeah and also this week uh, very sad news we heard of the passing of diana rigg at the age of 82 diana rigg of course most recently you know kind of was introduced to a new audience for for her work on game of thrones but obviously is an iconic actress who's been around for for ages but obviously early in the 60s for her work as emma peel in the avengers or as her work in on her majesty's secret service arguably the best bond movie certainly the most uh, affecting largely because of her role in that movie her performance and and what uh, happens to her character and she was just uh, a delight in everything i ever saw her in such a, a wonderful performer and yeah like i say just like a real icon of british pop culture of the last 50 years or so in a way that i really feel like very few people are you know very few like individual people as opposed to like characters like james bond like she was someone who really did have this incredible career where she was always able to find something that kept her relevant and kept being discovered by different audiences and different generations which is uh, as remarkable as the great work that she often did she seems really funny I, like as much as i love her work in the 60s but i think there's this through line she's just incredibly arch like she's mm-hmm. got that kind of well she's she's got that dame thing about her hasn't she yeah and I think she's the best thing in extras by far. 
mm-hmm. like her yeah, and yeah. her and Daniel Radcliffe will exchange some <laughs> please have my prophylactic back please like but she could just she just had this incredible ah she was just source she was a pillar mm. of source wasn't she and managed mm-hmm. to be like I love her in um, in the Avengers as, as Emma Peel like she's just so she's so in control of her sexuality mm-hmm. and like I think there's something about that look that she gives, right? It's like she's, you know, the male gaze stares long enough at you and then you're able to stare back and it'll mm. and it'll stand down. Yeah, she was wonderful. And I think you're right, it's amazing how she kept on kept on going and, and found different different generations and I guess a lot of younger people will just know her as Elena. And again, I think she's having a whale of a time <laughs> from what I've seen on Game of Thrones. But hopefully they'll look back through her work because it's such an impressive, such an impressive body of work. Mm, absolutely. And our final story for this week in this news episode was the announcement of the Academy's new eligibility rules for Best Picture, which are designed to kind of foster and promote diversity within the film industry more generally, but specifically in terms of movies that can be nominated for Best Picture. They came up with four categories and a movie has to pass two of the four in order to be uh, eligible to be submitted for best picture uh, one of which is that the lead or significant supporting actors general ensemble or main storyline and theme should reflect diversity i guess or it should be about you know people who are marginalized usually in uh, American filmmaking, the creativeship, uh, creative leadership, and apartment heads should have some percentage of them should be uh, people of color, or you know, just generally from minorities who don't usually have that sort of an input on film production. They should provide ease, uh, industry access, and opportunities. So offering jobs and you know, kind of trying to get people into the industry from marginalized communities. And the fourth one, which is kind of uh, seems a little nebulous, audience development, which I think is just about trying to appeal to audiences beyond, you know, the white people who usually care about the Oscars. And these all feel very well-meaning, but a lot of people have pointed out that they're kind of modelled on a similar set of rules that I believe BAFTA have in place, which various reports have said have actually done very little to foster diversity and inclusion in fact if anything they just uh, operate as kind of a fig leaf where you know films will aim to meet those categories in like the barest minimum way and then otherwise not really promote promote much else in terms of actually achieving anything and as a lot of people pointed out you know the Rules. These rules, as stated, would not say have excluded a movie like Green Book from being nominated for Best Picture. A movie that is, at best, not great on race, <laughs> and kind of like at you know, kind of the, it, it doesn't seem like it would do a huge amount to stop the kind of really milk toast retrograde movies from being nominated for best picture which is actually which seems to be what they're trying to do but on the other hand stuff like the um like the one to me that seems like the most important would be something like the third point industry access and opportunities like that seems like something that could genuinely have like an important impact further down the line and maybe that is kind of what the academy are looking towards when these rules go into effect in 2024 like maybe that's the, the the one that's perhaps could have the longest term and more positive impact going forward. But but at least initially, I think a lot of people are confused by the rules and and what they could potentially mean, or they view them as you know just kind of like well-meaning, but ultimately unlikely to achieve much. That is very much where I sit with them, Ed. Mm-hmm. I mean. Maybe it's just going to take four years for us all to understand how we can implement them, or like that's how long it's going to take to actually put the systems in place for this mm. to happen. It's also just the Academy and just Best Picture. So what? Mm. The the rather, every other film, no. <laughs> so you could still have, for example, if there were a bit more rigor to it, 
Green Book couldn't win Best Picture, but it could still win and get accolades. And, you know, I'm just like, does the Academy just need to stop trying, please? I mean, I'm, I'm all for trying to do the work. I don't see how this is doing the work, really. Um, there is, uh, so uh, Clive James Nwonka, who is um, a fellow in film studies at the London School of Economics, produced, and again, not my words, but the words of uh, Marcus Ryder, who's a, a visiting professor at uh, Birmingham City University, uh, looking particularly at media diversity. A, a rigorous academic study was published um, by Nwonka, and it just failed people of colour. Based on BFI diversity standards, and, it, and again, I just don't think there are enough people in in the room who understand them, um, what's what's helping it, or there, there are not enough, pe- they're not listening to the people who are actually affected and their concerns, because then if, if that were your basis, then you'd be able to look at things that actually work, rather than basing them off what is the industry standard but that has been proven academically to not help mm. just thinking of Dominic Buchanan for example I keep thinking about his open letter recently Dominic Buchanan being one of the main producers um, development and like all the way through um, for the end of the fucking world mm. his open letter about not getting a BAFTA statue and it's incredibly compassionate to everyone else that he has worked with it is a real rage against the machine and not understanding and again just this kind of lack of appreciation for certain stages of production but then also a producer who's a person of colour is successful and and not being able to be really in the club right and Mm. and it's this idea of like oh but you but you won why are you kind of why, why are you talking about not getting a statuette and it's like that's all part of it it's kind of the trying to pass something off as like a little extra and you are the one being petty about it not Mm. it's almost like the statue debate in inverted it's like oh but you don't really need this thing that's iconic and valorizing for the work that you've done Mm. that everyone else on the same it's it's wild like and again i don't think these things are like malevolent and i think a lot of us, myself included, are understanding racism isn't always burning tiki torches and killing protesters, right? Mm. Racism just abounds and it is and it is neglect and it is um, asking people to settle for less. Yeah. But it's just so strange and passive aggressive and I'm I'm not the one with the solutions, Ed. I'm, I don't know if you've noticed I'm painfully white but I just I, I fail to see where there has been proper advocacy and consultation here and mm. four years I keep I keep coming back four years it's, it can take that long and I don't know if that's anything to do with like COVID but then again it's like obviously the pandemic is the most disruptive thing we've faced as a species for a long time or more immediately right rather than a global warming mm. but it's also is this just tick boxing and scapegoating because the amount of stuff it's like oh because covid we can't and it's like really <laughs> if anything because of covid you absolutely must <laughs> you know mm. i i think it's at least the the four-year window i think is at least partly to allow movies that are in production now to not kind of get caught out by it because right i think or, or, or theoretically would be in production right now if it weren't for covid because i think you know they're they're worried about a situation where a movie you know gets made that it does well at the box office gets tons of great reviews but then only ticks one of those boxes but had the creators known about it like maybe they would have taken more steps to get those other people you know to fill in one of the other boxes maybe they would have hired more department heads who were people of color or women than they did because they weren't aware that this was a rule that was going to come in so they don't want to end up in a situation where where films get excluded because they weren't able to follow these new rules at the time which again makes you think well they probably should have been just doing it as a matter of course because that seems like a good thing to do but you know they don't want to anger their members you know they don't want to have all these people even madder at them about these rules than they already are because there are a lot of people who 
have already kind of like spoken about it like i think Bigo mortensen was particularly vocal about saying that he thought it was that the rules would be stifling and then said that you know does that mean like a movie like 1917 wouldn't be eligible although i did read an article that said that actually it would be because uh sam mendes is part west indian so he so 1917 would have been fine but yeah but but this oh there is sorry i'm sorry i'm just gonna vigo the rules are already stifling all you all you are saying is that they are stifling the people that i work with and the stuff like and there's no lack of awareness it's like we we do not have freedom right now. We are not unstifled. Sorry, Ed. Please carry on. <laughs> but like, I so I, I feel like it's partly that to like mitigate the the, the backlash that would be more uh, severe if you get to I don't know like January and it turns out that like West Side Story isn't eligible. Um, I I don't know the specifics of West Side Story too. Uh, if that one would fall foul of the rules, it just seems like a movie that would. You know, it just yeah. <laughs> seems like a very white movie for the most part. But yeah, so so I think it's to to take into account that, also to give people time to kind of figure out what the rules are. You know, like to to kind of work through the confusion, and to try and take steps to try and meet it. I think the most the most positive spin I think could be had on it is that it is something that is looking to try and force the industry at least the industry that is concerned with the awards because obviously there is a certain certain extent this is just the tail wagging the dog you know like not every studio is making movies thinking okay this is going to be a best picture nominee like they just aren't like loads of them are making movies that they just want to make money and if they get nominated for oscars then cool where but where but you know they want to try and make it's so that these movies that are intended to get nominated for Oscars are doing the absolute bare minimum, which a lot of them aren't now. Yeah, and I think yeah. that is admirable. I don't know if this will change that in any meaningful way, but I think I come back to that third point, the industry access and opportunities thing. Mm. If, as a result of this, thousands of people who otherwise wouldn't get a shot at being in the industry are able to get into it and are able to build careers from it and then they 10 20 years down the line are able to give other people from disadvantaged backgrounds or marginalized backgrounds are able to help other people then it it will have been worth it even if it doesn't necessarily change the kinds of movies that end up being nominated for the oscars because Ultimately, Oscar, ultimately, the Oscars are the Oscars, and occasionally, they'll you know, you'll get a Parasite or a Moonlight, and you think, oh wow, they got it right, cool, brilliant. But yeah. for the most part, they're going to nominate just a load of boring stuff that's you know kind of like Tony literary adaptations or kind of like social issues dramas that don't actually really address the social issues that they're about. That's just what they're going to nominate, and then you can't really do much to change that. No, and we, yeah, and we haven't been able to for a long time. But you're right; maybe the wheel is going to be bigger and take longer to turn because mm. if this has a legacy, and the legacy is, as you say, more people are able to get into and stay in the industry mm-hmm. because other people are incentivized to do so, then we will have, I think moonlights and parasites and i can't think of a moonlight Rona. <laughs> yeah i was just trying to think of one that ryan did sorry that's not in my <laughs> <laughs> but hey this could be the gold new deal right shiny shiny mm. esca i mean that would be amazing but <sighs> that's what i hope for i'm with you on that Okay, so we'll end this episode. We end all our episodes with Shot Verse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I have a really stunning piece of work from Dan Olson, aka Folding Ideas. His most recent piece, I think it came out, I think he released it a couple of days ago. Uh, we are recording on Sunday. It's called In Search of a Flat Earth, and it is about flat earthers and also a kind of follow-on from the majority of flatter critical takedowns that have been floating around for a few years. But it's it's just incredible the way that it shifts 
the way that it manages to illuminate and elucidate things that I'd been sort of feeling and he just through this really cogent analysis just you're like oh yeah of course that's it that's exactly it it's an hour and a quarter but it feels like 20 minutes it is so lean and well structured I cannot recommend it enough yeah I'll second that that is a really great video essay and uh, Dan Olson's done a lot of really great work this feels like a real landmark work from him in terms of his style in terms of what he is attempting to do with it and kind of the ways in which it shifts its focus over time yeah I just think it's a real kind of like amazing uh, achievement from him I'm also going to recommend the work of a YouTuber kind of someone who makes a lot of video essays I'm going to recommend the work of Patrick H. Willems whose work I had seen crop up in my recommendations every so often, but I'd never really kind of like dug into until I heard him on an episode of Blank Check uh, recently, where he was talking about the, uh, where he was talking about Robert Zemeckis' first film, I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, where he was on because he had done a whole video essay about the work of Robert Zemeckis. And I thought, okay, that sounds like it'd be really interesting to kind of see someone go through the entire career of this kind of hugely important figure in the history of like modern Hollywood and kind of charting particularly like the weird last 20 years of his career where you see him go into like mocap and eventually end up with Welcome to Marwin and I have kind of I kind of dipped in and out but the the stretch of episodes that I would really want to recommend is the episodes he has done this year since the beginning of the pandemic where he brings in he basically leaves new york city where he lives to go to upstate new york when the, the the virus really hits new york and it got really bad there and shifted the style of his show to be a talk show kind of subtly and in some cases not so subtly mocking the work of john krasinski's some good news and like he has like lots of recurring gags about how he's got a rivalry of john krasinski but over the course of the episodes he tackles lots of different subjects he has a two-parter on the work of john mctiernan he talks about little women he talks about joining the tcm wine club and just constantly getting drunk whilst watching classic movies which is really really funny and i think he's just such a great uh critic in terms of his assessment of different pieces of work he's got such great enthusiasm for the topics that he covers and he has such a kind of distinct viewpoint that uh, I've, I found going through his his work to be like a real pleasure and I would really really recommend uh, his work more generally but you know particularly the stuff he's been doing this year since the start of March uh, he also does a really good one where he talks about the what he calls the 90s dark universe where he talks about like Bram Stoker's Dracula Mary Shelley's Frankenstein all of these kind of like literary adaptations that tried to be a bit kind of like more gonzo in the 90s which is really entertaining so yeah i really highly recommend uh, patrick akers williams uh, youtube channel if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the help, best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me news news so much news news all the time news.